I invite you to turn this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews, chapter 10. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 to 18. We begin to read at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does take away the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Here in Hebrews chapter 10, the author sums up his discussion of the sacrificial atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he had begun in chapter 9 and verse 11. In verses 1 through 18, he reiterates the truth of the finality of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for sins. And it is this truth we want to consider this morning, the finality and sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for sins. And the finality and sufficiency of Christ's sacrificial offering for sin is set against the backdrop of what is portrayed in verses 1 through 4 as the utter 
inadequacy of the Levitical sacrificial offerings. The utter inadequacy of the Levitical sacrificial offerings. According to the writer of the Hebrews, the Levitical offerings were ineffective in addressing the problem of sin. And why was that the case? In verses 1 through 4, the writer presents at least four arguments. First of all, they were ineffective, they were unavailing because they were provisional. They were provisional. If you look at uh, what he says there in verse 1, he says the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. They were provisional, that is to say they were not permanent as such. They were placeholders. They were temporary means of addressing the problem of sin. There in verse 1, we are told, as we just read, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities. If I were to ask the question, what is a shadow? Of course, you would say, of course, we know what is a shadow. But let me say, what is a shadow for the purpose of our study? And while not everyone would be able to define precisely at least in a sophisticated manner, what is a shadow, everyone can readily identify a shadow. A shadow is basically a reflection that is cast from some real concrete object. One lexicon describes it as a shape cast by an object as it blocks rays of light or shadow, a mere representation of something that is real. So to say that the law of Moses was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities is to say really that the form is of way more importance than the shadow. And in practical terms, we know precisely the truth of this. For example, how many of you are as much satisfied with the shadow of, say, a spouse, your child, your favorite food, your pet, as you are with the respective realities that they represent. Right away, you would say, no way, not at all. I want the real thing. And so it is. The fact is, a shadow only serves to point to something that is beyond itself, to something that is greater. That is what the writer of the Hebrews is actually saying. They are a shadow, the law with its sacrificial offerings, were a representative of good things to come and not the reality of those things. The law was a shadow and not the actual substance of the good things that God ultimately intended. If you ask the question, what's an example of those realities that constitute what the writer describes as the good things to come, of which the law was but a shadow, the writer actually told us of one such reality, which in fact had come true in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Because there in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, we see that regarding the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ... The Bible says there that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of 
blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In other words, Christ, our Redeemer, the perfect sacrifice, the consummate sacrifice, is the real deal, is what he's saying. So what Christ, in his capacity as high priest, accomplished by his sacrificial death, was the form, the substance, the real deal of which the law, along with its sacrifices, was but a mere shadow. Second, the Levitical sacrifices were utterly inadequate. They were utterly insufficient, ineffective with, in regard to dealing with the problem of sin, not only because they were provisional, but secondly, they could not perfect the worshippers. They could not perfect the worshippers. We see that in the B part of verse 1, with the law being a mere shadow of what was to come, it could never, says the writer, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. As you will hear, the word perfect does not mean sinless perfection. The writer is not saying that the sacrifices of the Old Testament could not make those people sinless. That's not what he's saying. As you will hear, the word perfection refers to that ideal standing before God, that ideal standing of what we would call saving acceptance with God on the basis of a perfect sacrifice. Yes, under the law, those sacrifices, those Levitical sacrifices were commanded. The problem was they had no cleansing efficacy. They had no power to purge, no power to purify the sinner, no power to cleanse the sinner from the defilement of sin. The Levitical laws were woefully inadequate. They were woefully inadequate to deal with the problem of sin, to address the gnawing, long-standing problem of sin as seen in the fact that, number one, they were provisional. Number two, they could not perfect the worshiper. And then in the third place, the writer says this, that they were inadequate, they were insufficient to deal with the problem of sin because they could not pacify the consciences of the worshipers. Look at verse 2. Continuing with this point, that the Levitical sacrifices could not perfect the Worshippers, those who offer them, the, re- the, the author rhetorically asks this question. He says, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? And this question, the question in effect, makes the point that because there was a day-to-day, year-to-year continual offering of these sacrifices, because the priest stood daily in the temple offering these sacrifices, because the high priest went once every year into the most holy place to offer these sacrifices, the problem was the more they kept offering these sacrifices, the more the people were made aware of their sins. He asserts in verse 3, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Every time that animal, the throat was slit, every time that animal was offered up, the people were made acutely aware of how sinful they were. 
For the worshippers, the writer is saying that these sacrifices were painful reminders. They were painful reminders of their sins and hence of their sinfulness. You see, instead of cleansing the people of their sins, these sacrifices only convicted the people of their sins. Rather than removing their sins, these sacrifices only reminded them again and again and again of their need of forgiveness. They could not grant to the worshippers real enduring peace, is what the writer is saying. Talk about peace from the gnawing guilt of sin. All that these sacrifices did was to accentuate the worshippers' awareness of sin, of their being sinners before a holy and righteous God. Indeed, this was a reminder of what the Apostle Paul taught in Romans chapter 7 and verse 13, because there in Romans chapter 7 verse 13, remember what what the Apostle Paul taught? He taught that the function of the law was to reveal sin for what it is, so that sin by the law might appear to be exceedingly sinful. As well, a reminder of Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was our schoolmaster training us, training us, yes, but not converting us. Training us to see sin for what it is, but not dealing with the problem of sin. And let me say this, there are people today, my friends, who would want to be saved on the basis of doing this and doing that, of not doing this and not doing that. Let me say this, that if you ever you take that road, you never, you never stop trying, you never stop working, because here's the deal, no person has ever been saved nor will ever be saved by trying to be good, by trying to keep the law, by trying to keep the Ten Commandments. In fact, let me say this, it's something we have said time and again, if it were possible, if it were possible, and it is not possible, but if it were possible, let's say from today onward, to the rest of your life, you never committed one act of sin. You kept perfectly the Ten Commandments. Here's the point, and this is why many people are surprised. I said, listen, are you saying to me that if I'm sincere, I go to church, I do the best I can, that will not give me a place in heaven? That's correct. Because here's the point, even if it were possible for you to live the rest of your life sinless, the reason you could not go to heaven, my friends, is this, that past sins would still have to be atoned for. The law never saves anyone. Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7 verse 13, the only function of the law at the end of the day is to let people realize the sinfulness of sin, how hideous a thing sin is. It's to let persons realize how wretched they are in and of themselves apart from the saving grace of Christ. In the fourth place, the Levitical sacrifices, the author of Hebrews is saying, were ineffective in addressing the problem of sin because they did not please God. They were provisional. They did not pacify the conscience of the worshiper. They did not please God. 
They did not fulfill his perfect will and purpose is really what the writer is saying. You say how so? Notice verses 4 through 6. He says, therefore, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. That's what God says. God says yes, even though the law commanded it. Really and truly, that's not really my delight, not my pleasure. You know, I just let it go. Verse 4, notice verse 4. If you look back at verse 4, verse 4 forms what we would call a logical evaluative conclusion related to the ineffectiveness, the inadequacy of the Levitical sacrifices. The point is that at the end of the day, all the sacrifices, all the offerings for sins were of no avail. Why? Because it was not at all possible, the word of God says, for the blood of animals to remove guilt. It was not possible. And then notice verse 6. Verse 6 provides the fundamental reason as to why it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was this, the fact that God took no pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins. That's why it was not possible. Why? Because God just never had pleasure in it. And you know, beloved, long before our Lord Jesus came into this world, long before our Lord Jesus went to Calvary's cross to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world, there was already the knowledge that, properly speaking, God did not take pleasure in burnt offerings. He did not take pleasure in sacrifices. Long before, in the Old Testament, it was known that God did not take pleasure in sacrifices. You'll recall that David knew the reality of this very truth. David knew that although God himself had instituted these offerings, these sacrifices, they were not essentially his delight. They were not essentially his pleasure. Psalm 51 verses 16 and 17, remember what David said? David said this, For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, he says, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God. You will not despise. Now, what is David saying here? Implicit in David's declaration here in Psalm 51 is that these sacrifices, ceremonial as they were, ritualistic as they were, they did not get to the root of the sin problem that lay deep in the human heart. They did not get to the heart of the problem, which was the problem of the heart. David well understood that those sacrifices, those offerings, had no converting, transforming effect on one's innermost being. Second, God through the prophet Isaiah, Amos, and Malachi. If you read those prophets, you will see how that God was intensely, passionately opposed to sacrifices, to offerings, especially when they were offered hypocritically, especially when they were offered with sin in the lives of God's people. 
You see, for example, in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, God saying to the people, Oh, I wish that you would just shut the doors. He says, It's an abomination to me. Incense is an abomination to me. Sacrifices, I don't want it. He says, Your heart is polluted. You need to cleanse your life. Here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 9, the suggestion is that even where sacrifices are offered sincerely, even where those sacrifices are offered with good intentions, even where those sacrifices and offerings are dutifully, devotedly presented to God, God still found no pleasure in them. And why was that the case? Look at the parenthetic statement in verse 9. Here's what the writer comes back to. Look at verse 9. It was because, here it comes, they were offered according to the law. They were offered according to the law. Brethren, what do we remember about the law? Look at, back at verse 1. The law was but a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of those things. They were not the reality. The law was not the reality. Those sacrifices did not constitute the real deal. The very law, which according to chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, was weak and, with, and which made nothing perfect. You remember when we were in chapter 7, we were looking at the law? He says, listen, the law is weak. Why? Because of the flesh. Beloved, the word of God is abundantly clear that the law has no redeeming power. The, the law, word of God reveals that the law has no transforming, redeeming, converting power. For example, Romans chapter 8 verses 3 and 4 teaches that because the law was weakened by the flesh, it could not, it could not secure for us that righteousness which God demanded. Read chapter 7, look at the frustration of the apostle Paul. He says, the good things I want to do, I find I can't do. Every time I want to do good, I realize evil is present within me. Yes, I testify to the law that the law is good, but sin is dwelling in me. At the end of the day, the law is helpless to save. All that the law can do is to convict but not convert. According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, the law could not give us life. If it could, Paul says, then righteousness would have been by the law. And the reason we know that righteousness could never come by the law so as to give us life is simply because in and of ourselves, we lack the ability to meet the law's demands. You know that very well from your experience. I know that. Hence it was that the sacrifices mandated in the law could not remove sin. So here's the good news. Here's the good part of the sermon this morning. This brings us then to the one and only sacrifice that pleases God. The one and only sacrifice that pleases God. And it is this, verses 5 through 9, the sacrifice of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
These verses relate how Christ became that sacrificial offering which fulfilled God's pleasure, which fulfilled God's purpose. First of all, we see that in order to become the sacrifice for sins, Christ came into the world. Christ came into the world, notice verse 5, and of necessity, he had to come into the world. Why? Because the world was the very arena in which was found fallen, sinful humanity. In coming into the world, beloved, the word of God teaches that he stepped into our poverty, stepped into our misery, stepped into our wretchedness. He stepped into our lostness. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a trustworthy saying, and worthy of all acceptance, Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the gospel. The gospel is based on the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ, who formerly we know as the word of God, the eternal word of God, he stepped into history, he entered our world. That is an essential core of the gospel we proclaim, that Christ came into the world Indeed, he came into the world, John chapter 17, verse 18, having been sent by the Father. We learn in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 10 that the coming of Christ into the world involved his taking on human flesh. It meant that he had to take on a physical body. And this was necessary. Why? Because in order for him to be that consummate sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice that pleases God, that sacrifice in which God delights, he had to have had, he had to have a human body. He had to become man. There was no way around it. The only way he could have come into the world to save sinners was by taking on human flesh, by taking on our humanity, apart from sin, Notice verse five, verses 5 and 6. Consequently, here it comes, when Christ came into the world, he said sacrifices and offerings. He's talking to God the Father. He says sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body of you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins. You have taken no pleasure. And here the reference is to his, we would call his miraculous conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary and his ultimate birth in Bethlehem. That's what is in view there. And we see here, beloved, the crucial role of the incarnation in the whole scheme of human redemption. The argument of the author of Hebrews is that in order to be that supreme sacrifice in which God delights, in order to be that sacrifice in which God was well pleased, our Lord Jesus had to make his entry into this world as man. Why? Because animal sacrifices did not and could never satisfy God. You see, as far as God was concerned, the blood of goats and bulls, the blood of animals, just could not cut it when it came to taking away sins. It was only by means of the incarnation, the fact that Christ, the divine Son of God, could absorb in his body the full wrath of God, suffering, dying, the righteous for the unrighteous. That was the only basis on which sins could be what removed. 
He had to take on a body he had to enter this world. He had to go to the cross. He had to suffer. He had to, he had to bleed. He had to die. The point is, this satisfied the justice of God. It fully satisfied the justice of God. Sin requires the penalty of death, you see. It requires the penalty of eternal separation from God. As God would have it, because it was man who broke God's law, only a human could die in the place of another human. And Mark, you're not just any human. That human being had to be sinless. Because here's the point. If Adam paid for his sins, if Adam died for his sins, if Adam had suffered the eternal wrath of God for his sins, if you and I suffered the eternal wrath of God for our sins, that really, and let's say we, in suffering, even eventually, some people would say, you know, take you out of hell, save you. Listen, God still would not be satisfied. An innocent victim. An innocent victim, and we're not talking about an animal, irrational animals. A perfect, innocent victim in the form of man had to die. Why? Because it was man who in the first place had broken God's law. That is why it is impossible, the writer says, for animal blood, the blood of animals, to take away sins. Man broke God's law. Man must pay for God's broken law. Not just any man, but it had to be a perfect sinless man. This brings us to what we refer to as Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. In order to be our Redeemer, beloved, Christ had to obey God in these two respects. He had to positively, actively obey God's will, such that you'll hear our Lord Jesus saying, I come to do my Father's will. I always do those things that please my Father. That it was his active obedience. And he had to obey passively in the form of suffering for God's broken law, that broken law of which you and I are guilty. He had to not only positively obey God, but he had to passively obey God by laying down his life unto death. That's the only way in which God would be pleased with a sacrifice for sins. And so as to be able to suffer the infinite wrath of God's justice and thus be our sin bearer, our sufficient sacrifice for sin, that human had also to be divine. He had to be divine. Why was it necessary that this human sacrifice had, why was it that necessary that he had to be divine? Why? Because only a divine being beloved could absorb in his body, the full extent of God's infinite wrath and justice. A mere mortal could not do that. It requires the infinite God of heaven to absorb in his body the wrath of God, the full unleashing of God's wrath for sin. 
That's why no mortal, mere mortal, could have paid for our sins. That was why earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 17, we're told, verse 14 through 17, verse 14 and 17, since therefore the children, that is the redeemed, share in flesh and blood, he, that is Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. He's referring there to the humanity of Jesus. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect to make propitiation, that is, satisfaction for the sins of the people. And so you see once again why animal sacrifices could not cut it. God had no pleasure in them. Why? They could not satisfy God. They could not please God. Why? Because those animals were not in the place where they could absorb the infinite wrath of a holy God. It is the man Christ Jesus. It is the God-man it is the eternal divine son of God who was strong enough, who was capable enough to absorb in his body. First Peter chapter 2 verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We see then that without the incarnation, there would have been no savior. Apart from the incarnation, there would have been no salvation, no forgiveness of sins, no deliverance from the wrath of God. Praise God for Jesus. And as we move along very quickly, we're coming to a close. Let's note three remarkable features. Three remarkable features of Christ's atoning sacrifice as the writer presents them here for us. First of all, look at the willingness of his sacrifice. The willingness of his sacrifices, verses 7 through 10. As many as three times in these verses, notice, as many as three times, Christ is presented as having been willing to come into the world to be the sacrifice for sins in response to God's will. This, beloved, is huge. Because what a contrast we have here between the first Adam and the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember what of the first Adam with respect to his will? Anybody remembers? Yes. The first Adam there in the Garden of Eden. Disobediently asserted his own will over against God's will. Jesus Christ, however, as man, as the second Adam, surrendered his will to God. How often in the gospel, gospel of John, for example, John chapter 5, verse 30, John chapter 6, verse 38, John 5, 19, John 8, 28, John 8, 42, John 14, 10, we hear Jesus, we hear him time and again asserting, I came not to do my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. I came not to act on my own authority, but to act as I see the Father doing. And as a perfect sacrificial Lamb of God, how distinctly different was Christ our sacrifice, was Christ our Redeemer from animal sacrifices? Because here's the point, beloved, animals have no will. 
What is the kind of obedience that God requires? God requires the obedience that comes from what? A willing heart and mind. Animals can't do that. Animals can suffer, yes. They cannot absorb the full wrath of God. Neither can they rationally, willingly surrender themselves. What? That's why you have to tie them on the altar. Bind the sacrifices with cords on the altar, the psalmist says. They'll jump off. Christ voluntarily, Christ willingly laid down his life unto death. He says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down and I have power to take it up again. He willingly gave of himself. His was a willing sacrifice. They, those animals were not willing sacrifices. Now as regards his being a willing sacrifice, we learn two things. First of all, his willingness to be a sacrifice was a fulfillment of scripture. Look at verse 7. His willingness to be a sacrifice was a fulfillment of scripture. He is recorded there in verse 7 as saying to his father, as saying to God the father, Then I said, that is in response to God the father not being pleased with animal sacrifices, he says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Where in the scroll of the book do we find that saying? We find it in Psalm 40 verse 7. Here's the point. Christ's entry into the world to be the sacrifice for sins was a fulfillment of scripture underscoring the truth once again that his death on the cross was no accident. His death on the cross was no tragedy. It was no accident, but it was in perfect accord with the predetermined plan and purpose of God. Scripture prophesied it and Jesus in response, in fulfillment, of scripture came willingly to lay down his life for sins. Second, as regards his being a willing sacrifice, we learn verse 10, his willingness to be a sacrifice was the means of our sanctification. Verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus. You'll find that word sanctification recurring throughout the book of Hebrews. And that word sanctification, as it recurs in the book of Hebrews, is a comprehensive term for God's saving, redeeming activity. We see this, for example, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses verse 11, Hebrews 13, verse 12. That was why in the very opening chapter of the book of Hebrews, Christ's redemptive work is summarized as follows, as follows, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's the great news, beloved, by Christ's willingness, by his willingness to lay down his life as a sacrifice for our sins, you and I have been cleansed. You and I have been sanctified. You and I have been purified of our sins. The parallel thought is Romans chapter 5 verse 19. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made righteous, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I hope I read that right. Indeed, by one, as one, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
Indeed, it was through all he had savingly done on our behalf, being the sacrifice for our sins, willingly going to that cross, laying down his life for our sins, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, that we have been made the righteousness of God in him. What is the writer saying here? By his willing obedience to be that sacrifice, we are sanctified by that will. Our wills at best are weak. When it comes to obeying God, Jesus did it for us. He obeyed God perfectly, actively and passively. A second remarkable feature of Christ's sacrifice is the completeness of his sacrifice. Look at verses 11 through 13, and we won't make much comment here. I'll read the verses. The completeness. Look at the completeness of his sacrifice. He says there that every high, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You know, in the tabernacle, there was all but one piece of furniture. There was no chair. Why? There was no time to sit. Every day they stood, daily they stood, offering up the same sacrifice over and over and over again. At the end of history, as we saw last time, Jesus came and he entered once for all, not into the holy places of some earthly tabernacle, but he says, into heaven itself. And there he secured our redemption. Even as he hung on the cross, he was entering the holy places. And then look at the effectiveness of the sacrifice, verses 14 through 18. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws on their hearts, write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these there's no longer any offering for sin. You know what we should say to this? Hallelujah. The finality, the efficiency, the sufficiency of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. And so in summary, the reason why the Levitical, Levitical sacrifices were insufficient, the reason why they were inadequate, the reason why they could not fully take care of sins was this. They were not, in a nutshell, Leave here today. What was the reason? Here it is in a nutshell. They were not the real deal. They were just shadows. They did not constitute the substance of what God really wanted. Only Jesus Christ could satisfy. God. The Levitical sacrifices were never intended to be a permanent fix for the problem of sin. They were not at all designed to remove sins, to take away sins. As someone has well put it, someone says this quote, God provided animal sacrifices as a theology lesson regarding the seriousness of sin and the means of dealing with it and in anticipation of what was to come. They were only lessons about sin, not the payment for sin. End quote. The blood of animal sacrifices, as we've said, covered sin. 
but they could not provide cleansing from sin. Thanks be to God, only the blood of Jesus Christ does that. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses of all sin. And so being a shadow, mere shadow of good things to come, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament law served, we would say, only a preparatory. They served only an instructive purpose. They were administered not for the sake of saving us. They were administered simply for the sake of showing us the seriousness, the gravity of sin. What then is the writer doing in these 18 verses of chapter 10? Here's what the writer is doing as we close. The writer is therefore suggesting to his readers who are on the verge of going back into Judaism, going back to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, going back to dead works, going back to religiosity, to rituals. He was saying to them, as it were, he was saying, listen, don't do it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to apostatize. It's not worth it to turn from Christ the real deal. In Christ you have everything. In Christ you have total forgiveness. In Christ, if if the writer was here today, he says, listen, you don't have to go to Mass. Nonsense. In Christ, Christ has done the work. There's no need for Christ to be offered continually. The work is done. Trust in him. Are you struggling this morning with the problem of assurance? This chapter is for you. Rest in the perfect sacrifice with which God is well pleased. In your heart, in your conscience, you might be disturbed. You might not be pleased. But here's the point. God is pleased with Jesus. Are you? You see, that's where assurance comes in. Are you satisfied? What did the prophet Isaiah say? He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many? That's the gospel we preach. We rest in a perfect, complete redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. Songwriter says, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain. Could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. That's our Savior. If you're not saved, that's the Savior. I invite you to trust, won't you? May God grant that it would be so for his name's sake.